Hello, listeners. My name is David Blakesley, and I'm talking to you through the Criterion Cast Master Feed here, uh, kind of a, a network that we've got going and have had to going for the last, uh, I don't know, what, 12, 13 years now. Uh, CriterionCast.com is a website dedicated to uh, sing film with a focus on the Criterion Collection. And, of course, if you're listening to this, you probably know my voice as host of the Criterion Reflections podcast. I'm also kind of a co-host of Inside the Box, where we talk about um, the uh, box that's released by Criterion, and I contribute to the website in a bunch of other ways. Uh, but basically, I'm here to host a conversation of uh, one content creator to another. I'm here to talk to Cyber X Boyfriend. He is a person that I've met sort of virtually through TikTok a while back. Um, I started using TikTok in uh, 2021, right at the beginning of the year. And as I was kind of getting acclimated to this uh, particular app, uh, CyberX Boyfriend was one of the first uh, folks who was showing up regularly in my For You page. And I got to know him as the creator of kind of a uh, an occasional series, Roasting McMansions on Zillow, which I always found pretty amusing. Basically finds, uh, you know, gaudy, uh, overly hyped up uh, at McMansions, like I say, and uh, kind of gives him a little critical once over with a lot of wit and insight. But he also covers a lot of interesting topics. Uh, we ended up getting into a conversation back in December. We we actually interacted a little bit here and there before that. But uh, talking about the Criterion Collection, which, of course, as you know, is kind of one of my specialties, and, and uh, it's a it's a subject I have had lots and lots to say and write about over the years. Well, let's go ahead and introduce CyberX Boyfriend, and uh, let me hear a little bit about you uh, and, uh, you know, introduce yourself to our listeners here. Cool. Um, so my name is Eric. Um, I go by CyberX Boyfriend. I also go by Laura online too, um, which is more of a pen name. Um, yeah. So I do a show on Polaroid radio where I do a lot of stuff with like music and I love like just showing people stuff. And like, I started out with content creation, I'd say in 2017, about that time. Um, I know it was before I'll say 18, I think it was 18 or 19 around there. I don't know, um, doing content creation just because I really loved movies. And then I started doing TikTok a little bit after that, um, just naturally. But like TikTok like took off before YouTube mm-hmm. did. Um, I still do YouTube. Um, I try and be a little bit regular with that. But YouTube takes a lot more time than TikTok. That being said, um, thank you for hosting me. Um, I'm glad to be here and I'm excited to have this conversation. Absolutely, yeah. And for people who maybe you know, find find this episode uh, through the link through through you know Cyberx Boyfriend's feed, uh, you know, however he promotes it, uh, let me just tell a little bit about more about myself. I, I already said I'm a host of a podcast <clears throat> called Criterion Reflections, and this is a project that I started actually back in 2009, where I created a list, a spreadsheet of all the films released by the Criterion Collection. And I arrange them in their chronological order of their original release. So it's been a pre-ambitious project. And, of course, when I started, they were basically just a DVD and Blu-ray company. So I just listed the, the titles that were in physical media form. Uh, later on, I added in the Eclipse series, and I added in their laser discs from back in the 80s and 90s. 
and uh, now I've been adding in their streaming titles. So <laughs> my my list just continues to grow and grow and grow. So even though I've been at this for like well over what 12, 13 years now, I'm only up to the year 1972, and that's also because I sort of take my time with it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a busy person, and you know, got got other things that I do, but I really enjoy um, this kind of long-term project. And what I do in my podcast is I basically get together with different friends who have expressed an interest in talking about movies with me, and when it get, when the next one comes about my queue, I just contact them, and we schedule a time, and sometimes it's just me and one other guest, sometimes it's me and three or four, or whatever. And uh, and so, like, yeah, the last one I just did was uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Louis Benwell film. I'll be doing another episode on an Eric Romer film uh, tomorrow after we've done recording this one here. But basically, you know, I, I've just been working my way sort of a self propelled um, personal education on the history of cinema through the lens of the Criterion Collection. And so I've spent a lot of time uh, with the titles. And, and the reason I focus on Criterion is I think they, they have, uh, you know, excellent taste. At least it resonates pretty strongly with me as far as you know, the quality of the films that they've chosen. Uh, of course, a lot of this grew out of Janus Films. They were kind of the original sort of art house distributor back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but but Criterion has become this brand that uh, carries a lot of weight. It, 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 it's, they are tastemakers as well as reflecting of some of the best in cinema. Their, their, their mission statement is uh, important classic and contemporary films. And so that word important really does carry a lot of weight. I mean, it's... I think it's an accurate assessment of what they're trying to do, but there can be a downside to that. That this the sense of if it's an important film, it it ought to be Criterion, all right? So, so Eric, I want to kind of give you a chance to kind of maybe recap some of the points you made because uh, you made a TikTok video clip that I thought was actually pretty well thought out, pretty re- well reasoned. But it it did create sort of a desire in me to sort of want to respond to that and mm-hmm. maybe round out some of the points you made. Um, you could some people almost saw it as a, a disagreement, but I, I really wanted to make clear that I was not trying to to slam you or or show you up or anything like that because I thought your points were very salient, but that there is more to the picture than than that. So I I think this conversation is going to start at least by talking about the Criterion Collection as an institution, as a phenomenon, as an influence, and uh, we're just going to kind of let the conversation flow from there. It's not really scripted out. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me just a little bit about your impressions there, and we'll we'll kind of take it from there. So I like grew up with like the Criterion Collection, all of that. And when I say grew up, I think that like my taste in film like was really heavily informed by it, um, as mm-hmm. a lot of people's are. But I think I'm probably one of the first generations that's really grown up with the solidified, already existent like Criterion canon. So I remember like on Tumblr back in the day. So like talking 2015, you'd see a lot of like Godard stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, I had like went to go like find these films and I found out like some of them were on Hulu and then I just like dove in from there. I probably watched a lot back then. I know I probably can't recall all of it, but it did make a large impression on me and it definitely gave me that baseline knowledge of film. As I've grown a little bit older, I've like developed my own taste and my own interest in films. Um, and I've noticed that there were a lot of blind spots and criterions like, library and i know um a few years ago with everything that happened they've kind of started like really addressing that but i also felt that at times 
they were missing like there's still not a lot of animation in the uh like criterion collection even though they do put a lot of it on the app like i saw paprika on the app the other day so like that was a huge surprise to me um but there's also to me not a lot of like more formalist films and more contemporary formalist films so i think clueless is a really good example but that's also going into what i was saying before where there's kind of a lack of more feminine narratives and my issues with like criterion as an institution more so comes from the larger issues in the fact that like talking about clueless as a film doesn't get taken as seriously as as um fast times because clueless is like pink so there's almost like a pink connotation to films and media that usually star women deal with more feminine issues things like that and that's really where like i was coming from but also in the fact that inversely i think that you know like somebody like harmony corinne should really be in the collection and i feel that kind of i guess like darkness in the sense of like john waters i think quoted harmony corinne is like the natural extension of john waters i can't remember don't quote me on that but i think even so like when you consider something like trash humpers kind of and you compare it side by side <laughs> next mm-hmm. to something like multiple maniacs or pink flamingos stuff like that you have to kind of understand that to me i feel like john waters is like grandfathered in to canon in the sense of like people understand oh john waters you know that's an academic name it has like an academic connotation to it but like harmony he's a this elder statesman figure at this yeah, point yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. if you talk about like harmony corinne people will be like oh this that and the other because i remember once like i used to i used to be on reddit a ton and like talk on like the criterion subreddit i remember bringing up belly and something that like really like pissed me off is that um like somebody was like oh belly this like two-bit uh film by like a music video director i'm like no that's incorrect because like what hype williams did for like the music video and the art of the music video was so impactful but also you could apply that to somebody like spike jones who did um becoming john malkovich her um and uh like where the wild things are like really critically acclaimed films Mm -hmm. so like to me, a lot of what I was saying and where I was coming from is kind of a in ignorance to certain like I feel like Criterion because they are so popular and usher in a lot of the canon. It creates a lot of blind spots and ignorance in people's own taste and interest in film, and that gets mm-hmm. um, not personified, but it gets exemplified when you like have these discussions about film. Yeah, you know, well, you know, it, you know, it really ties into this whole idea of sort of fan culture as mm-hmm. well. And, uh, you know, one of the videos of yours that I watched just today was uh, pretty great, about an hour-long uh, sort of an extended essay about Disney nostalgia, content monopolies. And you talked about, you know, Disney's kind of monopolization of all the big franchises, mm-hmm. Marvel, Star Wars, and the, the control that they exert over uh, even the ability to watch the films, mm-hmm. or they, or they sometimes, you know, they they recast them, they retrograde them, so that you know the original versions you can't see anymore, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and and you know, Criterion is often presented as sort of the alternative to that. This is mm-hmm. this is serious cinema. This is courageous and challenging, and it and it is. I mean, I'm certainly not saying Criterion doesn't do that, but 
but even within that brand, there is a limitation. There is a, yeah. a sort of an exclusive effect. And and one of the other things about this conversation is this is kind of a cross generations. I mean, I I, I saw Star Wars on its opening weekend in '77. You know, I saw well before Revenge you were born. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but but also, you know, Criterion has sort of made a different impression on on younger viewers such as yourself and and so i am very interested in understanding that that landscape i mean criterion has been a known brand i remember like when they put the beatles um hard day's night out on like cd roms and Mm -hmm. and laser discs i wasn't collecting those at the time i mean i was I just I never had a laser disc player actually so I and then I got into raising my family just never had the money for that kind of thing but I've been aware of the Criterion brand for for a long time sort of in the background but then I really got into it in the early 2000s when the DVD started coming out first I was just getting from my library and and seeing some titles that I remember seeing from back in the 70s you know um things like like Wise Blood and and um um, all that jazz came out later, but you know some of that late '70s stuff that I yeah. grew up with as a, as like my late teens was coming out on DVD by Criterion, and and then I was discovering other things like Ingmar Bergman, another name that I knew mm-hmm. that he's an important filmmaker. Woody Allen's always kind of quoting him and and kind of riffing off of that. I should find out what that's all about. But by 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 this time, like in my late '30s, early '40s, um, and and just really beginning to explore this, and Criterion was a very trusted guide or gateway into a lot of different types of interesting cinematic experiences that I I knew I would I would mm. follow their lead and be introduced to valuable work and obviously it had such a big impact that I dedicated you know years of my uh, free time to to blogging and podcasting and and collecting and all of that but but I am still very interested in what what you could see as the downside mm. in that you know until it has that criterion brand it's not taken seriously as a film i mean how how <clears throat> the, the 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 marketing of cinema yeah. uh even with all of criterion's good intentions can kind of have this adverse effect um and i i want to hear a little bit yeah, more about yeah, your experience yeah. with that yeah so i think like i wasn't really introduced because like Criterion is the golden child as far as like boutique Blu-rays and like kind of, oh, prestigious cinema. When you, there was that thing that happened with that list, um, that somebody had made of like the hundred greatest films as voted yeah. on by a group and like, I think it was like a large percentage. I don't know the exact percentage was like. Well, this, that you're talking about the sight and sound poll mm-hmm. that just came out. Yeah, yeah and right, a lot right, of them that, were like mm-hmm. of like Criterion's like releases or on like the collection. Mm-hmm. And I think like yep. I know I personally didn't get into like Severin, Arrow, Vinegar Syndrome until like a few years ago. Like I'll say like four because like I wasn't mm-hmm. aware of them. And I think like anything in life is really just about awareness and how aware somebody is of something's existence and i think kind of criterion like they do a great job of like what they do and like how they usher a lot of stuff but again when you have those blind spots and you watch people talk about film and you see how people learn about film you kind of have a frustration because i remember like going back to the animation thing like that's always something that's really bugged me and it still really bugs me because I think mm-hmm. anime especially has a hard time. Like anime has like many like problematic things about it. Like we don't really have the time to get into it. But when there is a good anime film such as Akira, such as Perfect Blue, um, Millennium Actress, Bell was really good recently. Um, they don't get the same 
kind of attention, um, love and care or not attention, love and care more so like they don't get, um, allotted or like they don't get praised in the same way that the respectability. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of it too is like, it comes from like a deep seated love of like, I love animation, like the medium and what it does and like everything, like the power that it does or the power that it has, because like, I watched Perfect Blue and it changed my opinion of film because of what it did within its editing and time and space, similar to something like Mary and Bad and how it plays with time and space and the language of film and editing tricks that can only be done in animation. And I think that it, I found it really frustrating that like there was a point in time when Perfect Blue's like the only way to watch it or physically own it. Like you could either watch it on YouTube, which it was really washed out. The, the transfer's always been kind of washed out. I don't know why. Or you could buy a $200 DVD that was out of print. And it it was just like this big frustration where it's like, here's this thing. And here's like a market demand for this thing that people a lot. And if you look at people on Letterboxd and just how Satoshi Kone gets praised these days, um, like, like there's a lot. It, it seems like a no brainer yet. It wasn't there yet. We would get like watership down, which was kind of like, it's cool. And I understand the history around it. But like something like that, it goes back into the fact that I feel like anime has a hard time being legitimized. And I think it's easier to choose something like Watership Down than something that is more foreign to a lot of people, as well as foreign to somebody who could potentially be curating it as like anime, because anime has a huge connotation to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Criterion did release Akira on Laserdisc mm-hmm. back in the '90s. Uh, I, I mean, I know that more as a, a, a trivia factoid than I've yeah. never seen it. I've never watched or owned the, the was, Laserdisc. It was a big deal when it was released. <laughs> right. um, from what I remember correctly, I mm-hmm. think a lot mm-hmm. of it as to why. So take this with a grain of salt. This is partially my assumption and based on like research that I did years ago. Um, so I think a lot of the reason why is because it's under heavy lock and key as to why it never got re-canonicized because like they've been trying for multiple years to make a Western like Akira. So hmm. when you look at something like how Ghost in the Shell happened, that was under lock and key. Ghost in the Shell 2 was like really hard to get. And if you look at like the grudge in the ring, very hard to watch the originals as opposed to their American counterparts. And I think it just has something to do with the rights holder. Like not wanting... like the rights holder does not want the original in circulation while they're either developing it or or having sort of more of an exclusive claim on mm-hmm. what the Western audience can see. Oh. In which like Criterion would have had a harder time getting those rights. I don't know who did. Let me let me Google it real fast. I think I want to say okay, G Kids sure. did. I'm, it might be. Hold on. Like you're... Yeah, it seems like there was a pretty. Again, I don't own it, but I mm-hmm. I think there was a pretty definitive, or at least it was presented as such, uh, Blu-ray edition what, a few years ago. You know, maybe it's even had it like a collector's set. It's in 4K. Okay, mm-hmm. so so you know, and one could make the argument that anime as sort of a a, a really a, a a big sort of tradition or mm-hmm. genre within cinema maybe is just a little bit outside of Criterion's wheelhouse at this point. I mean, Criterion mm-hmm. released, you know, the early James Bond films and they released King Kong and, and, you know, mm-hmm. Casablanca back when those titles 
could could be obtained mm-hmm. because the studios didn't have the lock grip on them. They're never going to release James Bond films again, yeah. I don't think. It you was Mamba unless... Entertainment, by the way. I didn't yeah. want to cut you okay. off. I just couldn't find <laughs> no, it. No, that's okay, yeah. Yeah, which is a big uh, anime um, mm-hmm. subsidiary. Like So like they yeah. westernize, and not westernize, they localize. That's the better term. They localize a lot of anime over here. But um, what yeah. were you saying about the James Bond? Well, basically, the Criterion back in the Laserdisc era did have access to a lot of titles that I would say are pretty much out of reach for them right now. Mm. Um, I'm, I mean, they did get Citizen Kane back, which was the original spy number one on They Laserdisc. had Halloween, or like there was some like really big I, I, yeah, I think, at one point, too. Right. It was right, a lot right. more of uh, mid budget films. That's what I would say. Yeah. They did a and, good job. And, but, Right, and and they had, you know, there were other companies releasing laser discs, of course, back in the eighties and nineties, but they really were seen as like the pioneers or the 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 trailblazers of that whole medium. They invented right? the they, special feature, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Right, and 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 the, the bonus track, the, the 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 extra audio tracks, you could have a commentary playing in real time alongside the film. You know, mm. you would just switch your audio settings to play track two rather than track one so they, they took advantage of the technology that that digital presentation allowed and 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 also used that that innovative edge to acu- acquire the rights at least temporarily and then eventually the studio said hey we can publish these ourselves and so those rights became a lot more expensive or prohibitive but Criterion yeah. has also developed its own brand and its own sort of style. So, uh, again, it, it gets back into, you know, the sort of snobbery or exclusivity mm. that inevitably comes when somebody establishes kind of, it's, it's, it, I mean, you can think about music, you know, yeah. when, when artists go from indie labels and they sign with a major, you know, they're going to start, yeah, yeah, they yeah. used to play clubs, now they're playing arenas or, or at least, you know, 5,000 seat venues or whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, I have had a chance to actually talk with Peter Becker. I'm not, you know, it was a one-time thing. I don't think I'll ever cross paths with him again. But in 2017, I did have a chance to visit the Criterion office through a friend's intervention that set me up with a really unique opportunity. And it was, a, a of course, an incredibly memorable yeah, experience. Okay. But I, I did get a chance to sort of see the inner workings, at least for an afternoon in August of 2017, of how Criterion does its business. And it was it was a lot of fun. But I also felt Peter was a very, uh, very forthcoming in mm-hmm. sharing a lot of things that he asked me to keep confidential, especially with like things about upcoming releases and, and things of that sort. But but what I think I can say, you know, pretty freely is that, you know, Criterion does have a, a you know, they're, they're kind of walking a tightrope in a sense mm-hmm. because they, they know they have clout and they have. Uh, a, a reputation and and an influence that they've you know carefully cultivated as a business. They 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 profit from yeah. the, the the power of of their endorsement. When you put that little C on the cover of a of a Blu-ray or 4K DVD, uh, there's going to be people who will buy that disc like like myself, yeah. even if I would have passed by if it had been on another label. Um, but like you say, there's a downside to that. Mm. 
uh, as well, and and those blind spots that you talked about that I think moved you to make that original clip that I responded to, uh, you know, the exclusion of of black directors of, mm-hmm. of female voices. I, I think your point even about the uh, you know the pinkness I think is, is kind of how you put it mm-hmm. as far as clueless versus fast times. You could say uh, yeah. the Virgin Suicides, yes, but uh, Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. probably not. <laughs> you know, as far as like Sofia Coppola yeah. movies, but, but yeah, tell me a little bit more. About, yeah, music. yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, and music saying, rights yeah. and all of that. Yeah, sure. Be, yeah, because there are, there are those other sort of behind the scenes things. Who holds the rights? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what Peter talked about some of the deals and some of the arrangements that they had made were like almost up to the day, like the fifteenth of the month. I mean, just today they, uh, as we're recording this, they just announced their slate for May of of twenty twenty three. Maybe we can talk about that later. But yeah. you know, they 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 have to really keep a tight handle on what they announce because these deals can fall apart so quickly mm. over the slightest of little things. Yeah. So it's, it's a very, it's a very, um, elusive uh target that they're that they're aiming yeah. for sometimes and when things fall apart of course it blows up and it looks bad and it can leave people feeling like they've rejected this movie that means a lot to me mm. they're they're choosing not to release it when that may not exactly be the the case uh they may want, they may want to release things but it's just yeah. it's a it's a threading yeah. the needle to actually get mm. it to publication and I think like you, you kind of made a really good point when you were talking about that tight wire act, because I understand that they have a brand to uphold. They have a, mm-hmm. um, image to uphold. So like when you put something in there, it either assimilates to that image or it's so out of left field that it's saying that I, I believe in this and I believe that this should be part of this bigger repertoire that is recognized. But I do think. Like most things in life, I feel like academia can be very stuffy and it can be very overly Mm -hmm. like self-serious. And I think that's one of the things that like I clash heads with because I feel like I personally, I've gone all the way around where I was like, oh, I hate Marvel movies. I hate superhero movies, but (laughs) I'll I'll put on Supergirl these days. I think it's a crazy, like I love like camp. I love formalism. I love films that are like really big and fun in the traditional sense, but I also really love like very quiet films. And I think that the more fun films don't get as much attention in like traditional academic setting. I think, um, I can't remember. I want to say, so there was an example somebody posted on Twitter in which I think it was the all about Eve commentary and the commentator seemed like they didn't really like like old Hollywood films, but like, I know I personally love old Hollywood films and like for me I think it's really interesting that like I love like one from the heart but to me it's crazy that one from the heart is like absolutely detested when I think it's probably Francis Ford Coppola's like magnum opus and like that is Mm. not like an exaggeration I think it's that good of a film and I think that kind of people don't really look for like not that they're saying in that oh i need the most stuffy film but like it makes sense that inland empire is in the criterion collection and not something like um one from the heart you know it like two Mm -hmm. completely different films two completely like different wavelengths of cinema but i think in doing that you can create this gap and void where i feel like arrow has its own customer severin has its own customer and i think they kind of overlap more because they're both in that sleaze grind 
kind of part yeah. of like cinema and i feel mm-hmm. like criterion doesn't really acknowledge that portion of cinema but i also understand mm-hmm. that that is lowbrow that's low art but at the same time <laughs> i think yeah. there's value in like dush camp's work you know as opposed to like just van gogh and stuff like that and i think the the ideas and institutions that we have i think slowly will change and morph but i think traditionally academia and more academic and scholarly things will all create in content because i think that like as somebody who grew up watching a lot of other people talk about films i like even when i started making videos i feel like my videos aren't your traditional video essay where most video essays feel today we are going to be talking about yeah yeah by edward yang do 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 <laughs> and they're very like yeah, serious right. but i think mine are very like all over the place like i've made the joke that like my youtube videos are me weaponizing my adhd but it's also me saying <laughs> that like we yeah. can talk about movies and not be like we're in a library or college lecture hall but we can also acknowledge that every movie does not need to follow this like hyper realism very technical very like stuffy kind of like film language right right with this kind of existentially bleak conclusion mm-hmm. you know anything that's like too upbeat or leave them laughing as they go if unless it's blessed by the sort of the uh the aura of of the classic like you know old hollywood mm-hmm. screwball comedies yeah those, those are often tend to be pretty upbeat endings mm-hmm. but they're kind of hallowed because they come from that golden age mm-hmm. you know you don't you know like one from the heart like you referenced or, or maybe more recent just kind of fun happy-go-lucky kind of silly lightweight comedies you know that that's not really criterion worthy yeah. and, and i mean and i think that actually <laughs> is probably more of a criticism of the criterion fan base if i can kind of criticize my own tribe rather mm-hmm. than the company itself i i think really i i do feel like criterion has a, a pretty generous openness uh and, and i think mm-hmm. the blind spots Shaft is in there, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. One that just came out yesterday, Romeo and Juliet. Now, obviously, that's a very tragic movie. I mean, it's almost yeah. like the definition of tragedy. But it, there is a kind of sumptuousness of uh, uh, the, mm. you know, the production values and the glossiness yeah. and uh, the emphasis on teen heartthrobs mm. uh, as as the two leads were, especially back in the day of the late 1960s. I mean, again, I remember as a kid, I, I was a little, I was a little bit young to be the 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 test market for that film when it first came out, but I did watch it later on, like in high school, as a lot yeah. of people did. And, and, um, you know, but I, I would have said, I would have said, Zeffirelli, that's not really criterion ish stuff. You know, he's, he's so glossy and he's so kind of romanticized, but now it is a criterion film. Yeah. And that, that might be the only one they ever do of, of Zeffirelli's. But I, it was interesting. I mean, you, you talk about David Lynch. There was a time, you know, before the you know, Eraserhead was ever released by Criterion that David Lynch didn't, to me at least, and I think to a lot of other people, didn't feel like that's the kind of film that Criterion would get into. Really? Now it looks like Criterion might get, oh, yeah, definitely. It, it, David Lynch was kind of his own little sort of universe over here. And, okay. he, and, and they, he also published his own DVDs. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Twin Peaks was a big deal. But it was a TV series, and Criterion doesn't really do TV, you know. And, and then his films were just sort of seen as a little bit farther out of left field. Of course, when he was embraced by Criterion, whenever the deal was struck, that that 
oh, you know, Lynch isn't Criterion-ish. Yeah. That melted away pretty quickly. Was and now, Fellini yeah. in at the time when... Oh, Fellini, yeah. If you talk about uh, Fellini... The um, surrealist side course, of Fellini? Like the more... Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Eight and a half. That's interesting. Amarcord. I mean, Amarcord is what? Spine number, what, three or four, something like that? So, um, yeah. So... Fellini, Kurosawa, and Bergman. That's mm-hmm. like the big three of Criterion. You could throw Truffaut in there, mm. Ozu, uh, Seijun Suzuki, um, you know, a few others. Um, yeah. You know, Tarkovsky. I mean, the, the only Tarkovsky for a while was Andrei Rublev, you know. Really? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's crazy, but it's a great, yeah. fantastic film. Oh. Well, sure, but, 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 but like I say, there, there was. I think the Criterion canon was at one point much more fixed than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, John Waters, I, I I have friends who were really offended when when uh, you know John Waters' film started coming back into the collection. Of course, they did Pink Flamingos on Laserdisc many years ago, yeah. but that was that was seen as this kind of archaic one-off, and like I feel the like James it was Bond. The, like it was that. the last yeah. one that got in there too, and I'm thankful yeah. that they gave us polyester with like the little scratching. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think Criterion has kind of embraced some of that that campier side a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, uh, but, but again, like I say, there are people who really felt like Criterion let them down by mm. introducing these filthy <laughs> movies into yeah. the collection because it didn't fit their definition, which was that, as you said, academic primarily white male auteur driven cinema you know uh vim vendors and and uh uh terrence malick you know yeah. for for more recent years but the, these kind of cerebral white guys who have you know obviously impeccable technique mm. ambitious scope and scale of storytelling uh you know, and and a certain kind of uh, presentation of themselves oh, as yeah, these kind of yeah. hipster icons, you yeah, know. For sure. uh, and their 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 interview game is very strong, yeah. so you get the whole experience of not just a great film, but the brilliant mind that conceived mm. and presented this to to the audience. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and I think it's it's funny because you bring that up, and like look at how people like treat like Armageddon, and I think oh, yeah. we need more Michael Bay in the Criterion Collection, because I think (laughs) the language of film, like, and this is how I approach film, is that, like, the language of film that Michael Bay uses it is a master craft in the actual, like, technical, like, language of film, meaning that the the way the prose of film, I would say, in the same way, depending on, like, a writer, like, every writer uses different words, different vocabulary, and how they structure their sentences, and I think... To me, what makes a good film is especially in the edit, the cut. That's why I love like De Palma. I love Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. I love, I love like the technicality of it. And that's kind of why I was so blown away when I first saw House because Obuyashi's use of the language of film, not, not so much like the storytelling in it is such right. a master class. And I, it, it's a shame that like we don't have more Obuyashi in there because like I've literally bought like, bootlegs of the dvds and i know you can just torrent them but like yeah. mm-hmm. so it's a little bit difficult when you that's another reason why i can be so adamant because like i call it like level three level four torrenting because like that stuff isn't as easily piratable more or less than like a lot of like a transformers too you know like it's it's a lot mm-hmm. harder to find that stuff even so i don't know i mean i think well and you also want to change right 
Yeah, and and you want to see these, you know, these kind of more obscure or mm. more unique uh, individual visions given a good presentation. You, mm. you don't want just the film. You you, you want the special yeah. features. You want the liner notes. You want a good art piece. You know, uh, the packaging is is an important part of the whole process there. So yeah, you're right. I mean, I think by by saying you know this is kind of what makes the grade and and these are the ones that are you know inversely and maybe not always intentionally but they're left out it does sort of have this diminishing effect which then is sometimes counted as sort of against the film's worthiness and so i feel like you know with with the uh you know the pretty famous and much discussed New York Times article from a few years ago where it was pointed out that other than Spike Lee, you really don't have any brothers in yeah, represented yeah, yeah. in the Criterion Collection. Um, you know, to, I think, again, to their credit, Peter Becker, he didn't just do token lip service here. Mm. He's like, you know what, we are going to fundamentally... Uh, expand our mission. They're not going to change it. They're going to become more intentionally diverse, inclusive, mm-hmm. and and I think they've they've followed through and and, and made good on that. Yeah. Again, it, it doesn't mean that they're done. Of course. Uh, and I think it would be extremely disappointing if all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're just going to go back to scraping every last Truffaut Godard <laughs> every, every film that we can find. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and I think it's yeah. really interesting. And I think that like going back to the generational thing, like I love Jacques Demy and I, I was mm-hmm, introduced mm-hmm. Uh, to Jacques Demy through um, Anna Biller, like when they put the Love Witch on the Criterion channel oh, years yeah, ago, right, she right. had referenced that Podon was like such a huge, re- I just fell in love with his work. And I think it's really yeah. interesting that I feel like a lot of people would love like Demy's work because something like Un Chambre and Un Val, mm-hmm. It's like uh, The Chamber in the City is a very bleak film, but it's a very oh, yeah. operatic and like formalistic bleak in the same way, like going back to what you were saying about like Romeo and Juliet and even The Princess Bride. Like those are mm-hmm. more traditional films. And like I, I like going back to what you were saying, like John Cocteau's in there and um, yep. fantastic stuff. But it's it's interesting to kind of look at these films from like an outsider lens and be like, oh, okay, does John Cocteau and Parasite, do they mesh? Do they have the same market? But I think they do because I think good film is universal. But I think that idea and taste can be warped by like institutions or kind of how things can be presented to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, the the the, the mission of of, of Finding the great films, you know, world cinema is a whole nother direction that I think Criterion's yeah. done a, a great job in and getting into, you know, African cinema, Central and South American, mm. uh, Indian film outside of Satyajit Ray, <laughs> uh, Asian film outside of Kurosawa and Suzuki and, and some of the, yeah. you know, the, the, cla- the Mizuguchis and, and the classic, mm. uh, you know, 50s and 60s Japanese directors. Uh, you know, like Koryeda, he's kind of like the successor of Ozu. And so th- they have their, their threads, their themes, uh, but it, it feels to me like they're, they're still a, a company that's, that's very vital. And, and I also feel like, you know, Criterion is facing some challenges, mm. uh, as, as a lot of media publishers are in, in this environment. Uh, we're streaming and, 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 and audience tastes, uh, seem very ephemeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, going back to your, your Disney, uh, video that, that I was, uh, referencing earlier, I, I really appreciate what you had to say about the, um, 
raising our own self-awareness about the media that we consume doesn't mean mm-hmm. you know if you, if you watch star wars or if you follow the franchise it's, it's like you're a bad person for doing so but but don't get so limited or stuck on just mm-hmm. kind of consuming what's what's you know, fed your way, uh, the, the likening to McDonald's yeah. <laughs> when, when there's so many other great meals to be had, you mm-hmm. know, and to be enjoyed. Um, because you're right. I, 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 I do feel like we, we've lost something in that ability to get those mid budget movies mm-hmm. where there's significant resources being dedicated to making, you know, um, engaging, uh, somewhat challenging, but but also you know satisfying and enter- entertaining films yeah. that are they're less predictable, less based on you know IP branding and the the comfort of the familiar mm. or 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 seeing the uh, the familiar faces in the roles that you've gotten to know them and what's the newest variation yeah. on all of that. There, yeah. And we <laughs> so I, I yeah go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say that like I mean we've started to see it like I can think of I'm thinking of ending things. Roma, Glass mm-hmm. Onion. So I'm glad that, like, to a certain extent, we are seeing it. But it it is a shame because, like, I was, like, me and my girlfriend were talking the other night and we were just, like, watching movie trailers just for fun. And, like, I gravitate towards films like, like, Sugar and Spice. Like, even if it's bad, I just kind of find those, like, really fun, like, juxtaposition. Oh, cheerleaders who also rob banks. Like, I, I like that job. <laughs> here. And I think yeah. that kind of market is missing. And, like, what I find kind of like frustrating and as far as like going back to the original conversation is that like i feel like those films don't get ushered in as much and like it would be cool to see like a lot of that stuff kind of get recognized in the same way that we recognize like a Truffaut film but that also extends to who was talking about movies and like who what voices we are championing and things like that yeah, yeah. I mean, let's face it, a lot of the, the golden age of art house, if you're talking about 50s through maybe mid to early 70s, uh, that, that, uh, that, I'm not going to say the well is dry, but it's, it's definitely been very well covered territory. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, interesting new stuff and there's also a lot of those like you know more obscure films from the 70s i'm thinking like smithereens girlfriends stuff that was really super low budget uh really never never had mass distribution but it's just Mm. sort of been lurking there in the background uh even something like coolie high you know which which Mm. kind of is is a classic within its within you know like the black community or people who like movies about chicago or whatever well let's let's bring that out to a much broader audience and say you know what this is one that's been around for a long time but maybe you never even heard of it or thought about it but Mm. this is an amazing story uh claudine was another one from uh, several years ago a couple years ago um early 70s uh, film about yeah. uh, black families and the social service system, which I, I work in social services. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was just like, wow, you know, I'm on the provider side. What about the recipients and what mm-hmm. about uh, their dignity and their life and, and the things that they've got to go through just to kind of make ends meet as they're working through this very impersonal yeah. and, and often inhumane system that's supposed to be human services, right? So these are really, uh, these are the discoveries that I continue to marvel at to say, wow, this film's been there all along. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a little sad sometimes that I think it takes Criterion's branding to bring it to my attention, but I, I do appreciate the service they're providing <laughs> in doing so. And, yeah, and, and that their, their curation is, is reaching into all of those corners. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, 
And it's a catch-22 with that, too, because it's, like, I remember I used to find myself, like, really frustrated to, like, I would say that Sofia Coppola is, like, one of my top ten favorite directors. Mm -hmm. But, like, there was a point in time when she was my number one, and, like, one of my Mm -hmm. friends was like, yeah, but there are no black people in her movies. And I'm like, that's right, yeah. And it, like, kind of hit me because I wasn't even really, like, seeing that. But it's Mm -hmm. also the fact that, like, I don't go to Sofia Coppola for, like, black stories or, like, Wes Anderson for black stories in the same way that, like, I don't want Wes Anderson to make a like a black story because like that's not his story to tell um Mm -hmm. in the same way that like his stories are about like the wealthy the lives of the bourgeoisie and kind of like their melancholic dispositions but then change that to like curation right so like would it feel and i'm not saying that like oh like it's i feel some type of way but i did feel a little bit jaded in the sense of like bamboozled is a great film but i felt kind of like this is the second spike lead that you put in here because i feel like mm-hmm. it's such an aggressive offshoot and it's such an aggressive statement to have and to champion when you're missing so much of the more subtle stuff and like don't yeah. get me wrong i love bamboozled i think it's probably one of the best films ever made but it's it's one of those hard parts but i do like that like criterion is putting menace to society in there yeah. rather than like boys in the hood and like the more watered down stuff and it it's hard because it's like at the same time like do we share these things or do we keep them sacred because what happens when those things kind of get out of like control where mm-hmm. i think a lot of the issue too with presenting like black cinema is that you lose the black context that is needed to understand a lot of like black cinema and where it's coming from, where I think Dead Presidents is a fantastic film, but it also deals with a lot of like the baggage of race. It deals with a lot of the baggage from the Vietnam War and those two things intertwined. And I think mm. it's it can be like really, really hard. But I also think that like Candyman's a great film about race. It's fun. You know, Hill's been making Jordan Peele, I should say, my, mm-hmm. my bad, has been making really good films that deal with race that are also really entertaining. So. Mm-hmm. It can be done. It's just a matter of like, how do we do it delicately and give these things the actual like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like care that they deserve, you know? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to just throw it out there and say, okay, there's our our black film, or mm-hmm. there's our there's somebody other than Spike Lee, uh, because you're right. And this this again goes back into the packaging, the supplements, the special features, because they do give you that more well-rounded context, like the Malcolm X. I mean, that's that's another Spike mm-hmm. Lee there, but that is a real treasure box of material. You yeah. know, you've got you know uh, contemporary stuff from when Malcolm X was alive and doing his thing. You've got all this other material from you know after his assassination. Mm-hmm. So you you've really got a, almost like a history of Malcolm X when he was a living person, and then what he came to represent at different points in American culture along the way. And of course, then the film itself, and now here it is being reintroduced Mm. to audiences in 2022, 2023, so that the film is still relevant. It's it's a statement that's being made today, Mm. even though the film itself was released back in the early nineties. So, so I feel like, you know, 
when when Criterion puts these films out there, uh, they are they are reintroducing them into the discourse, and that's again what I what I enjoy about podcasting and about uh, the, the content creation. I did want to spend some time just talking about our experiences as yeah, content definitely. creators and, and engagement. Uh, you know, one of the things like I you know <clears throat> um, my main social media. Uh, throughout the years when I was doing this was, has been Facebook and I still have some groups that I'm a part of that I, I really appreciate. I've gotten to know some pretty great folks over there. Uh, but TikTok, uh, and I've, I've dabbled in YouTube a little bit there, but I've definitely felt it. It's hard to make a video that meets my standards and, uh, and, you know, creates engagement because YouTube is such a vast platform and you've really, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I haven't cracked the code to how to get it out there to where a lot of people see it. One of the things I like about TikTok is that, man, it, it gives you feedback. Uh, even if it's only, you know, a video that gets a few hundred views or maybe a, a, you know, a couple mm -hmm. thousand, that's not anything close to what you would call viral, but, uh, I do appreciate the back and forth, and I really appreciate engaging with this this younger audience that seems mm -hmm. to have you know gathered around this app. And and you're, and you're one of the people uh, certainly well, you're the first yeah. person I've, I, that I've gotten on to this level. I've I've had some pretty good interactions on like you know direct messaging and and even just comments on the videos the the clips themselves. But I just want to kind of hear a little bit about your experience as a as a creator and, yeah. and kind of some of the the things you've learned, some of the struggles. Just your thoughts on what does it take to sort of get your voice out there? Content creation is like really weird because it's a double-edged sword. It's like, what do I want to make? But also what will people actually watch? Where it's like, mm -hmm. I debated for a really long time doing a video essay about the last movie because it's like, not a lot of people do that. And like, I need like 50 to 40 minutes to cover the different elements of surrealism and the two stories that are running almost parallel with one another. Yeah. And it takes a lot of depth and it's like, you can't talk about that on TikTok. And yeah, you're talking about Dennis Hopper's the mm -hmm. last movie, yeah, right? The, just, the yeah. One. If people don't understand that reference, I just want to make sure it was clarified yeah. what you were, what you were yeah. mentioning. I didn't yeah. realize mm -hmm. how crazy that sounded. The last movie. Well, the last movie, <laughs> like what, what movie was that? Really? <laughs> the last movie. <laughs> um, but yeah. Right. And I think that, it can be really fun and it can be really rewarding, but I also think it can be a challenge because like I haven't found my YouTube audience yet. And like, there was a point in time when I would post my stuff on Reddit and it like, it would kill the engagement because a lot of people, I don't know if it's the, the Reddit audience, but it's also that like a lot of them were, so Reddit has a lot of weird rules when it comes to like self-promotion. That's a whole nother topic, but essentially they don't like self-promotion. So you either end it, you end up in like small like clicks or like, small like post for post farms and like being in those like it kills your engagement because people are just only watching it and commenting to say that they commented so that they can do their next post it's not sincere engagement and i think mm -hmm. one of the things that is kind of frustrating about tiktok compared to youtube is that i don't think it does a good job of fostering a community in the same natural way that youtube or twitter or a lot of other social medias do but i have seen within the past year year and a half that a lot of people on tiktok are starting to like foster a community it yeah well because you you know you're just getting a constant stream of clips you know you can't create a group in the same way like you can create a facebook group you know and i i do appreciate that i don't really 
post a lot of my movie stuff on my personal timeline. In fact, my personal timeline is basically things that I'm doing, maybe mm-hmm. my family. Um, I, I don't editorialize or express opinions mm-hmm. nearly as freely on Facebook main feed, but in, in my groups I do because we're here to talk about Criterion or film or, mm-hmm. or a few other you know, specialty interests. With TikTok, I guess what I what I like is the fact that it also keeps your material in circulation for a pretty good amount of time. You know, mm. whether you know, if you want to use hashtags, but I, I mean, I get video clips that I've made last year, six months ago, and and uh, people are still engaging with it, and mm. and it's like cool. I'm glad that you you know, because it feels like in in even like in podcasts. Boy, once it's off the top of the feed, it's it's kind of buried away there. You know, people need to almost deliberately come looking for yeah. it. And you know, I have I have produced you know hundreds of, of written reviews and and um, you know podcast episodes, and I've been guests on other podcasts and stuff. And I just don't know how much of that circulates around, and it doesn't always seem to generate a lot of comment or or exchange. And and even though, like I say, I, I'm up about seven thousand followers, a little bit mm. more than that. I've added a few hundred even the last few weeks, which is which is nice. And you're, you're, I'm sure your following is pretty much bigger than that. But I don't know. But what do you what do you get from it from just kind of a, a personal uh, you know connection with with other viewers or people who follow you and comment and stuff like that? What's, yeah, what's your I think been that like? like I can just I like that like TikTok is like lower effort, but I also dislike mm-hmm. that um, because I yeah. think TikTok is <laughs> yeah. in the culture that like I worry for the next generation. And like, I know that sounds so dramatic or like, right, because I am like technically Gen Z, but like I look at the younger Gen Z and there's almost a lack of like genuine thought provoking conversation when I won't, wouldn't even lie that like part of me bringing up that like criterion conversation was to kind of stir the pot in the sense of like, yeah. People like sensationalism. TikTok slides mm-hmm. off of sensationalism. Yep, I made another yep. post about like the Criterion Collection, kind of talking about like how they don't lifestyle as much, but like that would again that would again go back to what we were saying prior about like devaluing their brand. But I'm getting kind of off topic. So like when it comes to <laughs> posting yeah. content on TikTok and like all of that, I feel like TikTok is not as evergreen as YouTube is, where it's like. After about six months, I noticed that stuff is dead, dead. And like, I could be getting engagement on things from like years ago, but like it, it, it moves really fast. And my biggest issue is that TikTok has accelerated the culture in a lot of ways in the fact Mm -hmm. that like, you have to be really careful about like what you're talking about on TikTok. So like, if like, I'm, I'm I'm in my own like subgroup of like content, right? But let's say Mm -hmm. if I was like, maybe at a million, two million followers. And I was talking about, oh, the Criterion sale, do, 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 this and the other. You got to get like, I don't know, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, you got to get uh, Daisies, Citizen Kane. Like those films could easily sell out because of that impact. But like, and it's scary because when it comes to more limited things and stuff like that, people want, they want to have the limited things to get that exposure and then get that same feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the difficulty even of posting links. I mean, that, that's another thing. I can't, mm. I, I can't even post a link to my uh, podcast. You know, I, I can show like a screenshot of what it yeah, looks like where, where to find the website. Engagement. 
Right, oh, yeah. and they want to keep you on their app mm-hmm. exactly. So you or you can put a link in the bio or something like that. But but also just that ephemeral, you know, yeah, you can go I I, I can go up to 10 minutes now on a clip, but I know I'm going to be losing people after yeah. about 90 seconds, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um and and I also appreciate what you said to say about uh, TikTok uh thriving on sensationalism. And of course, all the other social media, I mean, Instagram is trying to become sort of a TikTok clone and Facebook's got their own little thing going like that. Um, and Twitter certainly has become sort of a, a, a cesspool of, of kind of pushing right winger ideas. At yeah. you. I mean, it's just been very, very discouraging to see where these apps go. Um, one of the things I really appreciated in some of the comments that, like when I made my response clip to yours and then you did one back, there were people said, wow, how nice to see actual reasonable discourse mm-hmm. between different points of view. And, and yeah, that we weren't just trying to flame each other out yeah. or, or, or dunk and make you look stupid or mm-hmm. me look like, you know, some old dude or whatever yeah, the case yeah, may yeah. be. Yeah, really we, we just had a, and, 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 and you can definitely rack up the hits and, and you can get people on your side of the conflict to cheer you on and, you know, put down the other side. And it's like, I, I'm very tired of that. And, and I do have concerns that that's where kind of, uh, the, the shortened attention spans and the, and just the, the kind of surface appeal of, ooh, there's a fight breaking out over there. Let's go yeah. check it out versus let's really understand where each other's coming from and, and learn and, and, and actually enjoy hmm. the, the, uh, the, the mutual discovery that goes on as we start kind of cross pollinating, uh, our tastes, yeah. our interests and learning maybe to appreciate things that, we're kind of off our radar because of the little tunnels that we've dug ourselves into yeah, as far yeah, as yeah. the content that we go looking for mm. to add to our personal library or who we decide to engage with uh, when we're online doing our social media stuff. Yeah, I think you made a good point about sensationalism because, like, there's two things that I've noticed. Like, so I when I kind of first got into, like, YouTube and all of that. I was a little bit young and I got into like people flaming older movies. So it's like, Oh, let's trash on the Goonies, stuff like that. And then <laughs> yeah, yeah. after that, slowly, like after like that era of YouTube, you had like cinema sins, which is like, Oh, the continuity in this scene, her dresses, this it was people oh, right. not critiquing Nitpicky, stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. And it, it changed the way people engage with like film and stuff for a little bit. And now TikTok is like, there's, there's this weird trend on TikTok where they're like, Let's do, um, I don't know, Mission Impossible. He walk in room and bomb is detonated and he run. And it's like literally like a movie in like five parts of a text to speech describing what's going on with like the audio of the movie, like actually needed. Mm-hmm. It's insane. And I think what's really scary too is that I've seen, I don't know if this is like is more so because of like the culture that's changing and shifting and the culture wars that's going on. But, like, people on film Twitter as, like, a thing, there's this whole discourse where people think, like, they almost want to go back to, like, Hayes Code, like, the mindset um, when it comes to filmmaking, where they're, like, no nudity, no sex, stuff like that, not understanding that there are other implications that come from that. And I think that can go kind of into people not really reaching for things on a deeper level, but, like, that goes back to, like, TikTok and that shortened attention span. 
All right. Well, we are pretty much coming to the end of our time, Eric. So I really appreciate this conversation. And I definitely say um, I want to keep this this dialogue going with you. So, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that I do this podcast with I've got this little slate of guests and folks that I connect with. Uh, another show that we do on Criterion Cast is called Criterion Now. And that's one that's kind of talking more mm-hmm. about like current releases and Criterion-based news. Uh, that's hosted by my friend mm-hmm. Aaron West and Jill Blake, and I definitely think like recommend that you be a guest on their podcast yeah. sometime because I think you've got a lot of interesting things to say, and I, I think it would be great just to kind of expand our, our pool of people that we talk to um, mm-hmm. on, on our each of our shows. So I definitely look forward to uh, you know getting you on my spreadsheet, having your voice. Yeah, uh, I would uh, love we, to. We've got a We've got a Melvin Van Peebles film coming up, and not just I'm going to categorize you like, well, I'll just have you talk about black films with me, because, uh, mm-hmm. but but I, I, you know, one of the things I've noticed is, yeah, I've got a lot of guys that fit my demographic, you know, guys in their mm-hmm. 40s, 50s, 60s, and I, I really want to, again, as I said with Tick, I, I really enjoy the fact that uh, I can talk to like teenagers, people in their 20s, uh, who who have a a different experience of film. I mean, there's there's a, there's some pretty young dudes who've reached out. They want to they want to talk about like something like cries and whispers with me. It's like, man, you're like 15 years old and you want to talk about cries and whispers yeah. or, or like come and see is like their favorite film. Yeah, it's like, dude, it's that's some crazy. pretty heavy stuff for a, for a kid who's not even knows what it's like to be a grown up yet, you know? But I mean, I, I yeah. but I'm, I'm so interested to tap into what it is about these really dark, heavy, ominous titles that has captured their imagination. I mean, I, I still have pretty vivid memories of when I was a teenager mm. and I was into, you know, you know, the most raunchy, outrageous rock and roll I could find, all of that. Yeah, go ahead. I think it's the litmus testing. So it's, so (laughs) it's, because I remember. Which is another criterion side effect, right? Yeah. yeah, But I also Mm -hmm. remember um, Sallow being the come and see that was there before (laughs) come and see came out where everybody's like, oh, can you handle this crazy film? And like, there's good and bad to that. But I also think it's like good that people are watching like those darker stories because I think you know, come and see is probably the greatest depiction of war ever. Well, it's it's the most unflinching. Yeah. It's it's incredibly brutal, and it and it does have that sort of personal effect. You're following this one protagonist who starts off as this kind of energized. It's, I'm going to go fight for my country, fight for glamorous. my people. No, it's not glamorous. There's no heroics. There's no, you know, raising the flag at the end or I, you know, maybe, maybe I died, but it was worth it because mm-hmm. they will live, you know, and, and I'll be remembered. It's, it's none of that. It's just like the darkest path of nihilism and, and, and it's you a, know, the it's futility from the Russian of it all. Perspective, yeah, right. Which, are, yeah right. knowing, which is something that you don't normally see. People don't talk about that group within the conflict. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the greatest things, I think, you know, if you want to talk of sort of a subcategory within the Criterion Collection, all of the stuff that they've done, uh, another uh, film called The Bridge, uh, mm-hmm. the, from the German point of view, you know, of course, it came out like in the late 50s, but it was about the futility of war from Germany's perspective. The, uh, the Kenosha Eclipse series set of films that were made in Japan, 
uh, as pro-war propaganda from the Japanese perspective. One of those films, the first one, I can't remember the title right offhand, but shows the Japanese celebrating the victorious bombing of Pearl Harbor and the mm. other things that took place on that day. And, you know, you're sort of caught up in the, the jingoism of like, yeah, we kicked the Americans yeah. ass, you know, wasn't that great? And to watch that, and it's like, wow, that's always been depicted to me as like the most heinous, mm. craven, cowardly, treacherous thing anybody's ever done. And here they are celebrating it. And, and how much of that same mentality is pushed in American war movies where we are doing the same you know, destructive thing to mm. innocent people who happen to be on the wrong side of those bombs that we were just dropping and cheering on as yeah. John Wayne's at I mean, the we wheel. Play, we know? play Call of Duty. Like, that's the craziest yeah. thing to me. That, like, yeah. I don't know. I think I love movies, especially because they do teach you a lot about the world. And I think it is arguably next to, like, video games because video games are interactive. Like, mm-hmm. movies are such a three-dimensional medium. And yeah. yeah. It's it's one of those things that it's like there's so much technology that's put into them. I wish like 3D caught on just for the sake of saying that like I would like more things like a long day's journey into night, just playing with that language of film and kind of really pushing it. And I think it's really interesting that like certain films get really popular on TikTok. Like I call them going back to the litmus test thing because like possession is really popular. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, um, right. People love Crash. I mean, Crash, like, I like to make jokes about it, but, like, I think Crash is such <laughs> yeah. an interesting movie, especially when you look into the, the, not the, what's it called? The philosophy of it and how You're we right, become right. one with machines and technology and things like that and the advancements of technology and the extension of, like, um, what do you call it? Like, your body is the extension of, like, the machinery that you were using, those philosophies. I think that's really intriguing, but, like, that's what film does. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, it it puts ideas in front of you that have been thoughtfully considered and skillfully rendered by the creator and says, check this out, make this part of your mental world, your imagination, and see where it takes you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but you're right, sometimes it, it it can almost turn into a parody of itself of just, like, brutal intensity for its own sake you know mm. uh it's maybe sometimes a, a bit of a cost of just our basic humanity like how much do we just need to wallow in, in suffering and misery mm. uh and does that become sort of a form of 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 cheap entertainment or even escapism even a kind yeah. of a, a shallow type of you know uh you know kind of a mindless consumption of the sort yeah. that we critique when it's, we talk about superhero films or, you know, lightweight rom-coms yeah. or Hallmark movies or whatever, you know. For me, um, like, personally, I say, like, my films are either, like, super, super dark, super nihilistic, mm-hmm, or, like, mm-hmm. the most bubbly, formalistic, we're singing, <laughs> we're dancing, yeah. and that's what right. I don't like. I mean, that's what I like, and I don't like that kind of in-between where I feel like a lot of superhero movies take away the consequence of violence and it's something that i've noticed in films like the new robocop so the first r-rated movie i ever watched was the og robocop and i remember my mom letting me watch it and like i remember people wincing in agony after they got shot and you saw the effects and in the new robocop there's none of that and that's something that it's just pretty explosions and you know the bullet hits and they just drop down and there's no there's no gnashing. There's no writhing yeah. in pain. There's no suffering. It's just like, okay, that your time is up. You're, you're off stage now. You know, yeah. that's it. And I think that like, there's a good essay on how horror has like ramped up via limit experiences, which is what like they, they're called 
like horror that like really stretches the the human psyche. So something like Hellraiser is an an, uh, an example of like a limit experience, which would bring us eventually to something like the Final Destination, which is another limit experience. But I cannot watch the Final Destination. That's like the one horror movie that and Saw. I can't love horror. Can't do either of those films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if, you know, and I'm I'm not that steeped. I mean, I've seen enough to say okay, I, I get, I kind of get where they're going, but it's just not. There are many other movies I'd rather watch. I guess, yeah, uh, I'll yeah, just put yeah. it that way. It's just the economy of, of how much time and where I want to direct my attention span. So speaking of time, it is time for me to wrap this up. But, you know, this, again, I'm really glad that we had a chance to stretch out these yeah. little uh, back and forth that we did on TikTok. Hopefully people who follow that exchange, and I will post clips of those original clips will be embedded in the show notes. You can find the episode link on criteriancast.com yeah. if you want to kind of trace the conversation back to its origin. But I'm definitely glad that we took this hour to, to really expand on that and to take the conversation to some new territory. And I think this is the first uh, installment of, of others that we're going to have down the road uh, if everything yeah. works out as planned. So really thank you nice. for your time, Eric. It was yeah, a lot of fun. Of and thank look you for forward to. Me, David. Uh, all right. Okay. Well, how how do people want to find you? We'll, again, we'll have links to uh, your YouTube page, but do you just want to kind of tell people kind of where you put your stuff? Um, all my social media is CyberX Boyfriend. I do HG Teeth Radio on Polaroid Radio. And the only difference in social media is that Twitter is just a single X because of characters, but everything is CyberX Boyfriend. Okay. And what is this Polaroid radio? I don't think I've ever, I've, I've tapped into that. Is that like, is that like a podcast type of thing? So like audio tracks or what? It's, it's a radio station. It's an internet radio okay. station. So I curate music. Um, itchy teeth is, I think I came up with that name because it describes anxiety and like we're said to be in the time of anxiety, which is where that name came <laughs> from. And it's a blend are, of yes. uh-huh. like, I just play like pop music, but I also play like hip hop. So like you'll find alternative hip hop underground like rock stuff that like bjork remixes like very like i really try to curate and show people music that they've never heard of but like music that's also familiar so the spice girls are on there it's just fun because all of it is the same it's pop music it's popular music you know shoegaze is just as popular as britney spears so right yeah. Well, and again, I, I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but yeah, you cover a lot of topics. I'm, I'm very impressed by that. Like I, I go deep into movies and I can talk about other things, but I pretty much stay on, on my track. But you, you cover a lot and, and your music uh, clips are another piece that I've like, yeah, I've, I've made some good discoveries uh, you. through your recommendation. So I'll, I'll check that radio station out and I encourage listeners to do the same. So, OK, I'm going to call close now. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be talking to you real soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.